we're much less in control than we realize. And I think that unless we accept that, we're going to have continue to have difficulty managing the process, regulating the process, and um, making sure that technology develops in ways that is beneficial to humans. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to The Feedback Loop by Singularity. This week, our guest is Distinguished Professor in Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences at UC Berkeley, Edward A. Lee, who has written extensively about the relationship between humans and technology in his books entitled Plato and the Nerd and the Co-Evolution. In this episode, Edward lays out his argument against the status quo of digital creationism, which states that humans are the gods shaping technology and instead proposes an alternative narrative where humans and technology are symbiotic entities navigating a very Darwinian relationship. This takes us on a tour of the many facets of this co-evolution, including the pros and cons, the philosophical implications, the impacts on the regulatory landscape, and much, much more. So without further ado, everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Edward Lee. So before we get into the perspective that you're supporting and, and that I think will be the bulk of this conversation, I thought it might be useful to actually start with the perspective that I would say you're somewhat countering, which feels like that of digital creationism. Could you explain what that concept of digital creationism is and, and why it's potentially a detrimental framing for our relationship with technology? Sure. Um, so a little bit of background might be helpful. I'm sure an engineer. Uh, I've been an engineer for my entire career, um, working on uh, embedded software mostly for about 40 years. And for the bulk of my career, I lived under this illusion that everything that I created as part of my engineering activities was my own product, that it was something that came out of my own cognitive mind. And I have come to realize more recently that everything that I've created is actually almost completely uh, defined by the cultural context within which I was creating it. Uh, if I write a program in, you know, some programming language, the programming language and the tools around that programming language profoundly affect my, um, the outcome of my of my programming exercise and the fact is that every programming exercise involves pulling in pieces of code from a lot of a lot of different sources and putting them together and so i came to realize that um that in fact what i do as an engineer is more like act like an agent of mutation in a evolutionary process and that the product of my activities um, survives or doesn't survive for largely evolutionary reasons. And I think that the problem with the view that I held before, which is that, you know, the outcome of what an engineer does is um, top-down intelligent design. Um, the problem with that view, I think, is that it really... Um, distorts the amount, the idea that we as humans actually control the development of technology. Uh, we, it gives us an illusion, a, a false sense of confidence that we're actually in control of the direction in which things are going. And uh, I think that we're much less in control than we realize. And I think that unless we accept that, we're going to have continue to have difficulty um, managing the process, regulating the process, and um, making sure that technology develops in ways that is beneficial to humans. Yeah. And if we are out of control, or let's say not as in control as we like to think, what is that 
relationship dynamic look like? You know, you talk about Darwinian coevolution between human and machine. What are what are some of the principal dynamics that um, you know we each partake in or bring to the table in that dynamic? I think the catchphrase that I would use is that we are agents of mutation. Um, and I think, you know, if we look at what has happened in the last year with um, generative AI, uh, for example, the emergence of the large language models, which I think is really quite a dramatic event. And um, in, in many ways, it's, uh, it's quite striking that I know, I know a lot of people who are top experts in the field of AI. I don't know anybody who isn't astonished by what has happened in the last year. Even the top experts are surprised. To some degree, you know, the top experts in AI have the advantage that they are not surprised to be surprised. They, they kind of expected unexpected outcomes, but this was very much an unexpected outcome, and it's um, uh, very hard to predict where it's going from here. And so I think the simplistic notion that, you know, a bunch of smart people at OpenAI figured out how to make an intelligent machine and that it was the result of intelligent design decisions by humans is just a misunderstanding of the process. I mean, they, they're certainly intelligent humans, uh, that were involved in this, but, um, the outcome wasn't, um, anticipated. It wasn't designed in. It wasn't, um, it's not top down intelligent design. It, it, it's, uh, and so I think we, we really, if we're going to, figure out, for example, how to regulate AI, um, we have to recognize that, right? We can't just sort of try to pin the blame on the individuals involved in the process because I don't think that's going to be an effective uh, form of regulation. Yeah. Well, aside from the surprise that I think many of us felt, and I'm, I'm sure you did as well, were there other aspects about the large language models mainstream adoption and, and the power that they kind of brought to the table that might've changed any perspectives that you had, or, you know, was there something specifically, I guess, that surprised you or, or impressed you with, with what we've seen? Yeah, there, there's one aspect that, that to me was, was really quite striking, which was that um, the ability that the machines have to, to do, uh, reasoning and particularly uh, mathematical reasoning to reason about numbers, to reason about equations, to be able to have an intelligent discussion about um, some mathematical result, to be able to solve mathematical problems. In, in some ways, you know, we think of computers as being very good at mathematics, right? They, uh, that's, uh, they, they do arithmetic certainly extremely well. The amazing thing about the large language models is that they're not using the machine's ability to do arithmetic. So, you know, two years ago when we had, you know, um, GPT-2, you could ask it questions about arithmetic and, and it would give you a confident answer that was often wrong. Um, I would characterize it as being roughly the kind of answer you might expect from a four-year-old. And then, you know, GPT-3 and 3.5, which are uh, the basis for chat GPT, um, give answers that are sometimes wrong, but they're really much better. They, I would characterize the mistakes that they make as roughly equivalent to that of a smart high school student. Uh, GPT-4 is also makes mistakes, but the mistakes that it makes are kind of like mistakes I might see from a really, really bright Berkeley graduate student. And that's progress in roughly, you know, one to two years, uh, which is really quite astonishing. And the fact that this reasoning ability, the ability to reason about mathematical problems emerges from this prediction machine that is the large language model, and it's not 
making any direct use of the arithmetic capabilities of the machine that it's running on, uh, that was a big surprise to me. And to me, it, it tells me a lot uh, about possibly how the human brain works, that we may have invented a machine here that can give us tremendous insights into how our own reasoning ability has emerged from the mechanics of the brain. And um, so that, that aspect of it was, was really a big surprise. Well, speaking of the, the benefit that we gain as well, um, you have this line uh, on the blurb in your book that I love for uh, Plato and the nerd that says complementarity <laughs> and symbiosis are more likely than confrontation and annihilation. And do you feel like this is a really good sign of that symbiotic relationship that we're forming with our technology that we're kind of finding this potentially mutually beneficial uh, relationship where we prompt, you know, act as maybe a selection process. And in return that we, we get this benefit of increased knowledge about ourselves as well. Does, does this feel like a good step in that direction of symbiosis? Uh, possibly. I, I mean, certainly I hope so. Hmm. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of um, intellectuals who have been sort of busy on the, uh, uh, on, in the media these days, trying to find reasons for dismissing what we're seeing and, you know, saying that the machines don't truly understand like humans do, as if we understood how humans understand, which uh, I don't think anyone does. Um, and, you know, they say, well, they're just stochastic parrots. They're just uh, um, plagiarizing the content of the web. I think anyone who's worked with chat GPT can I mean, yes, if you ask it a very simple question, um, it'll often give you something back that you could find almost verbatim in Wikipedia. But ask it anything non-trivial, and you're not going to find the response out there on the web. So it, it really isn't plagiarizing. And so um, I think that, you know, these kind of dismissals, I think, are a defensive mechanism in some ways, then, and it's a denial mechanism. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, technology has been for thousands of years an intellectual prosthetic for, for humans. When, uh, the Sumerians, uh, invented a writing system, uh, and when, you know, uh, when scholars finally decoded some of the tablets that had been found in, uh, in, in Sumerian writing, they were profoundly disappointed because you know, they expected to find wise philosophical thoughts or stories or something like that. And mostly what they found was bookkeeping that, you know, these tablets were records of things that were having, that they were having to keep track of. And so writing as a technology is a prosthetic. It, it complements human abilities and gives us mechanisms by which we can create societies that involve more than a few dozen people, which is very hard to do if you don't have a writing system. And, you know, we've seen other big transformations in intellectual prosthetics. Um, you know, the printing press is also uh, something that has had a tremendous impact on the cognitive mind of humans. I think um, the uh, smartphone revolution has had a profound effect on the cognitive function of humans and society. Uh, some effects are beneficial, some effects are not, right? And I think that the large language models are almost certainly the next step in this. And I think we need to learn to use them as a cognitive prosthetic to be able to do what we do better. And I don't think it's necessarily going to be that easy to do. And there's going to be, we're going to trip and fall. Uh, and there's going to be mess ups and there's going to be abuses. Um, I think they're inevitable. So, uh, but I, I'm hoping that we can find a way to use this technology uh, to beneficial ends. Yeah. I mean, you, you touched there on the end of the question I, I was wanting to get into, which is, do you think that symbiotic relationship, that historical arc that you're laying out there, is it 
kind of a given because it is so evolutionary advantageous, at least in the long term. You know, even if there's local valleys, it's going to inevitably go, you know, through, uh, towards a peak. Um, or is this something that we really have to fight for if we're going to reign in this uh, the symbiotic relationship, if we're going to harness it for good? I think we, we do have a lot of work to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the risks are, are enormous. Um, I, I don't feel like it's an existential threat in the usual sense that, you know, Elon Musk or, or Vladimir Putin, you know, like to say, I don't, I don't really buy into the, the, those kinds of doomsday scenarios, but I think that there is a, a real potential for the technology to be hugely transformative and uh, transformation when we have, I, you know, I, I feel like the eight, eight billion people on this planet are really in a pretty precarious situation, right? We're, we're, we're in a very precarious situation with climate change. And, um, you know, when, when you have eight billion people vying for resources, uh, in, within this limited scope, if something goes wrong, um, the results could be just monstrously disastrous. Um, my guess is that, you know, that it's more the human agents that we should be afraid of than the AI agents. But, um, you know, that there's any, tra- any huge transformation in a culture of this scale and at this stale, state of precariousness is, uh, is very worrisome. And so I, I think we really need to put our effort into trying to, um, deeply understand what's happening and try to figure out ways to steer it in the right direction. Yeah. Do you think in that sense that AI is going to help eradicate or at least inhibit the more irrational and capricious behaviors that we engage in and and make us ultimately better actors in the world? Or, you know, given that the AI right now, at least these large language models are pulling data from the human world are basically learning to model our mistakes and, and our failings um, that they will end up repeating those failings and maybe even empowering them. How, how do you reconcile that dynamic? I think that both, uh, both of those kinds of uh, scenarios are, are very real and have actually shown up. Um, you know, when Microsoft released the chatbot known as Tay um, a few years ago, um, you know, malicious players on uh, in, on the uh, Twitter sphere uh, were able to train Tay very quickly to become a racist bigot. And, you know, to me, it actually, you know, the, the way these machines work, I think, has the potential to teach us a lot about humans, right? I, I mean, the same Twitter sphere teaches humans to be racist bigots and in very much the same way. And so, you know, it, it may be that by seeing how these machines work, um, we could understand a little bit better how humans work as well in these, in these kinds of contexts. Uh, on the other hand, in the other direction, um, I was astonished when I read a, an article uh, published about a week ago, I think, um, that described a study of using um, ChatGPT to provide um, medical advice. So it took uh, queries from, um, you know, these services where you email your doctor, right, and ask some, some questions. And uh, they set up a, a control trial where they had you know, they had doctors answering questions and they had chat GPT answering questions from patients. And then they had doctors evaluating the answers and the doctors doing the evaluation didn't know which answers were coming from, from chat GPT and which ones were coming from, um, from real human doctors. And, um, chat GPT outscored the human doctors in virtually every category in accuracy, and most astonishingly, in empathy. Okay, the responses from ChatGPT 
the doctors evaluated them as being more empathetic than the answers from human doctors. And that to me says, well, okay, with, you know, fine tuning of the models, it can be possible to, you know, get them to respond in a certain way that can potentially mediate some of the nastier sides of human instinct. And, you know, so imagine, I, I mean, I would personally appreciate a, an AI, as long as it preserved my privacy, which might be challenging, but an AI that, you know, before I hit the send button on the email, or maybe when I send hit the send button, it gives me a chance to rethink this, right? Do you, it could say, um, you know, maybe based on your previous conversation with this person, this is a little harsh or something like that, right? Or, you know, there's a possibility that this uh, email that you're about to send could be taken the wrong way or something like that. I mean, I think that would be a fantastic use of these AIs and it could really help, um, it could really help interpersonal relationships between humans to have such a thing. Because, I mean, I think the we all know that, you know, communication by email is much less effective than um, speaking to a person directly and that a lot of things happen in email and in chat rooms that really wouldn't happen. The same people would not behave the same way if they were standing face to face and talking to each other. And that, you know, suggests to me that there's a mismatch between that technology and the way that humans naturally interact. And so when we have a mismatch in technology, one of the possible approaches is to improve the technology and make it a better match. And I think there is a real possibility for that here. You spoke there about the uh, model being used in relationship to the doctor and how accurate and even empathetic it was and interjecting in the emailing process. And I think a lot of people right now fear that what you presented there is just a hair away from the human actually being replaced or unnecessary, right? Why not just have the AI write the email? Why not just let the uh, doctor, why not just let the AI be the doctor? So in essence, what, what do you say to those people who feel like these symbiotic uh, dynamics that you're alluding to here that would be beneficial are kind of the first step into phasing out the human? Yeah, I um, I actually wrote about a scenario like that in um, in my coevolution book, where you know I talked about um, using uh, these agents that are based on a technology that Google called Duplex, where they um, can you know take a relatively small sample of your voice and then create a machine that can replicate your voice and sound just like you and speak for you. And, um, you know, ways that you could use this to interact with people and how that could really go quite awry. And you could find, you know, your, your duplex talking to someone else's duplex while you just, you know, sit home alone and, (laughs) um, binge watch something on TV. Uh, so there, there is real risk of that. I mean, uh, you know, people joke about how, you know, you can ask chat GPT to, to, take, you know, a a real quick curt statement and expand it into a long email. And then at the the receiving end, they could take the long email and ask ChatGPT to give you a quick summary of it. And (laughs) um, I think these are, you know, phenomena that we have to watch out for. And um, there might be beneficial uses, there might be um, risky uses, but yes, there is, a, there is a risk of a kind of runaway phenomenon here where the humans participate less in the process. Well, I, I think that risk is real. And this is kind of a, a transhumanist, uh, phrasing here, but do you think it is part of our skin bag bias to hold on to, to kind of that messy nuanced version of us that might not say the right things in the email um, and that maybe it's okay to to have the AI summarize it and engage? Like, do you have a moral stance or a thought on how, how far we can go in terms of what we 
concede to, to the machines? Um, well, I think that everything that we do should be oriented towards maximizing the value for humans. Um, and I don't think we have any assurance that even humans will act that way. Okay. Um, so I guess, you know, simplistically, to the extent that I'm willing to take a moral stance, I would say that if, you know, the actions that are uh, clearly not beneficial to humans um, are things that I think we should discourage. Uh, but yeah, so in, in that sense, I'm being speciest here. I, I mean, I talk in the coevolution about whether we should be considering these machines to be living digital beings and uh, being, you know, a new life form on the planet. And um, this is, uh, you know, a concept that I originally heard from George Dyson, who's a historian of technology. And uh, I think, um, you know, he's written quite eloquently about the point of view of the technology as being um, a new life form on the planet. And, you know, if you view it from that perspective, um, it could, you know, become something that has its own rights. Um, but I'm willing to be speciest and say, I, I think we should put our rights ahead of uh, the rights of any other species. Um, and that's uh, just perhaps a reflection of my own species. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty natural. Well, you spoke there about the uh, the the living digital beings, and I believe at one point, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you even make an argument that something like Wikipedia uh, could be seen as a living digital being. If I am correct on that, could you just justify what you really mean by that? How you, why you could say that Wikipedia is a living digital being? Yeah, I I think you know there, there's a lot of debate. Uh, among um, philosophers and biologists and all kinds of people about what it means to be living. And there's disagreements in, you know, what constitutes is a virus alive, for example. Mm. Well, you know, a virus is unable to reproduce on its own. It has to hijack the reproduction mechanism of a uh, of another cell in order to um, replicate itself. And so, you know, is it is it li a living thing or is it just a, a, a chemical machine? And where do we draw the line between, you know, a chemical machine and a living thing? And I think it's a very difficult line to draw. But if you look at the characteristics that we usually ascribe to living things, um, you know, they, they sit in an environment that they react to stimulus from the environment and, uh, they grow over time. Uh, they reproduce. They there's in as part of reproduction. There's heredity, where you know the characteristics of the descendants is partially influenced by the ancestors. Uh, there's homeostasis. You know, maintaining internal conditions that are um, maintained steady in the presence of environmental changes. Uh, there's metabolism. You know, these are all things that we. Um, think of as being associated with, with being living. And every one of these things is also a property of Wikipedia. You know, Wikipedia has been uh, reacting to its environment more or less continuously since uh, I think around 2000, um, when it started up uh, running on a single server and that server no longer exists, just like, you know, many of the cells in our body w weren't that, you know, that we were born with are no longer there. Um, but there's, you know, and it's grown considerably and it's, uh, uh, continues to react to its environment. It does have homeostasis, right? It maintains internal conditions, uh, and adapts things. Just think of the temperature regulation in the data centers where the machines are running. Um, there's reproduction and heredity. There's a lot of wikis out there that uh, are direct descendants of Wikipedia. And in fact, have acquired a lot of the same code uh, from Wikipedia and adapted it, mutated it further uh, into other forms. So there's heredity as well. Um, 
metabolism is a little weirder, right? Because mm-hmm. what does what does Wikipedia eat? Well, it eats electricity, and you know today most of that electricity is generated by uh, burning fossil fuels. So, you know, I guess in a, at a level of indirection, it eats natural gas, um, and but that's perhaps a bit of a stretch to think of it that way. But you know, the, the fact is that. So, you know, if you define life in such a way that you require it to be biological, then these things are clearly not living. But if you define life in terms of these processes that that biological machines happen to have, um, then the analogies become an awful lot stronger. And, you know, it becomes much more defensible to think of them as living things. Yeah, if we leave behind the biological, though, and we we shift to the computational, uh, I believe you're not super fond of viewing everything in the world as computational, correct? Yes, that's right. I think that um, one of the kind of more um, nuanced arguments that I make in the coevolution book is that, and in and previously in Plato and the Nerd, uh, is that. Um, there's a prevailing view among computer scientists about the universality of computation, that everything can ultimately be modeled as a computation. And um, I don't think that's true. And I think I, I, I give rather extensive arguments about why um, that is probably not the case. I, I also give arguments that the, the hypothesis isn't actually testable by experiment. And so we can't really consider it to be a scientific hypothesis and then construct experiments that try to support or refute it. Um, I have argued that that is actually not possible. And so when you have a hypothesis like that, that is untestable, ultimately it becomes a question of faith rather than, um, rather than, uh, question about whether it's a reality. And I think that the prevailing view among many computer scientists that everything, and by the way, many physicists as well, that everything is ultimately computation, I think is really better viewed as a faith than than a scientific hypothesis. And I personally feel like it's a rather inefficient way to think of the world. And um, so as, as models go, I, I don't find it particularly effective. Do you think we're just viewing it as computational because that's the latest, uh, technological advance? So we, you know, we typically think in the metaphor of our, our latest technology, or do you have, um, and you're just holding the door open, I guess, for the next metaphor that we'll use, or do you actually have an alternative to the computational narrative, something that you, you think that we can grasp onto now? Well, I, I think that, um, so there's, there's potential for a lot of confusion here about terminology Mm -hmm. in, in some ways, uh, philosophically, I'm very much a a mechanist. I believe that everything that happens in the physical world is a consequence of physical processes and that includes the cognitive mind. And so in some sense, you can view everything that happens in the physical world as, a, as machines. But equating machines with computation is where I, I differ with many of my colleagues. Gotcha. Uh, there are many machines that I don't think are reasonably modeled in the Turing Church view of computation. They're not algorithmic processes in the sense that they consist of a sequence of discrete steps where each step is some logical action. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't think that there's any reason to believe that they're operating on discrete data, that there's no reason that the physical world should be constraining itself to only a you know, discrete possibilities. There's no physical evidence for that. There's lots of uh, physicists who are trying to prove this, that ultimately the world is discrete. And um, as I've stated before, I think that similar to the hypothesis about computation, I think that hypothesis is also untestable by experiment. 
And so ultimately, you know, it becomes a, a question of faith and a question of how useful are the models. And uh, I am of the opinion that my, my, my faith is, I would say that I, I'm very hesitant to um, assume that the natural world has tied its hands behind its back and for reasons that we can't possibly explain has limited itself to a discrete universe. Like, yeah. To me, that's just really far-fetched that there would have been such a limitation and I can't think of any reason why there, why there would have been. Yeah. Let's, let's take a step into the world of speculation, I guess here, if you're comfortable with that and, and run this idea through a bit of a basic thought experiment, but what happens when we attempt to upload consciousness? Is that something that you think we can do? Is 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 the machines, is the machine, I guess, a, a medium that could host this in in your mind eventually? So I I talk quite a bit about this in the coevolution book, um, and um, I um, critique quite a number of thought leaders who just sort of assume that this is um, in principle possible, and they're basing it on a mechanistic view of the world. The assumption is that uh, since consciousness, if you assume that consciousness arises from uh, the physical processes of, of uh, biological mass in the brain, then you, there's an assumption that you could replicate that in a computer. But there's a number of problems, some of which are really deeply technical. And I, I talk about a, uh, a, a classic result due to Claude Shannon, who in 1948 proved that if you have a communication medium, a way of getting information from point A to point B, if it, if that communication medium is in any way imperfect, then the amount of information that can be conveyed is limited. It's, so there, it, there's, there could be a great deal more information in the source than you can possibly convey over that imperfect medium. And every medium of communication is imperfect. In fact, I have worked on, uh, you know, really pretty deeply technical arguments that show that it is physically impossible to do, to assume that, uh, noiseless measurements can be made, for example. Um, and, so if you understand uh, uh, Claude Shannon's um, uh, theory here, uh, which is uh, he was the creator of what is now known as information theory, um, then the only way that we could upload our consciousness is that if it is, it is, if it is in fact a digital computational process. And again, I have shown that that's an untestable hypothesis. And so, you know, if someone tries to sell you a machine uh, that they promise that, yes, it will kill you, but your consciousness will now exist in the machine, um, and they demonstrate it for you on some poor victim, um, you will still have no evidence that it in fact worked. Even if the machine starts to talk like, you know, like, um, who is it? Johnny Depp in Inception. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, even if the machine shows all over notions of having acquired your personality and so forth, um, there's no evidence that it acquired your identity. And so you may in fact have ceased to exist and there's no way to determine whether that has been the case. It's an untestable hypothesis. So I would be very reluctant to buy that machine myself. If we take the humans out of the equation then and, and look strictly at maybe the advancing forms of AI, do you think they'll attain some level of qualia? I mean, if we give them this living digital being label and status uh, and we potentially even give them rights, you know, as we were talking about before, is this because they've attained something akin to a conscious experience that we need to be very mindful of? Um, so here we're, we're getting into the realm of speculation, but um, I am 
willing to predict that in a very short period of time, you know, maybe within a year or two, um, we're going to have machines that are, um, that are indistinguishable from conscious beings. And I think that the key step, which is currently largely missing, uh, but is coming very quickly is, um, the ability that the machines have to act in the physical world. So uh, one of the things I talk about in the Coevolution book, uh, I, while I was researching for this book, I learned a lot about um, the concept of embodied cognition, which is a, a, uh, a thesis in psychology that um, uh, was, I think, first really best uh, described by Esther uh, Thelen, who uh, argued that the conscious mind isn't just a process going on inside the brain, but rather is the interaction of that process with its environment, the environment, including the body. And, um, and psychologists and neuroscientists have developed, have identified a number of mechanisms that are really central to all animals that, um, that are a key part of this. And it's a feedback mechanism. Uh, the, the term that's used in neuroscience is efference copy. And so it, you can think of it very simply is when your brain tells your body to do something like, you know, wave your hand next to your face. Um, it, the, it feeds back into your sensory system. The, the fact that it's telling your muscles to do this so that your eyes kind of learn to expect to see motion in your peripheral vision. So when you wave your own hand next to your face, you don't suddenly, you don't suddenly panic because you're seeing something uh, in your peripheral vision. You expected to see it. So this feedback mechanism has been identified even in the simplest uh, animals. So there's a probably one of the best studied uh, organisms on the planet is a tiny worm called uh, C. elegans. It has fewer than a thousand cells. <clears throat> Approximately one third of the cells are neurons. And the, so it's a, on the order of 300 neurons. And uh, biologists have, and neuroscientists have mapped out these neurons quite in quite a bit of detail. So we know more about the structure of this nervous system than uh, any other, probably any other organism on the planet. Um, but it has this efference copy mechanism and it gives it the ability to distinguish self from non-self. So if, you know, the worm curls up and its tail touches itself, it doesn't panic and start moving. But on the other hand, if some external event touches it in the same way at the same place, it does panic and start moving. Okay. And this ability to distinguish self from non-self, I think, is at the core of consciousness. And th as soon as the machines are given hands, not just eyes and ears, but an ability to act in the physical world and to act in a way that then reflects back into a sensory system, they have the potential then to acquire some form of embodied cognition. And to a limited degree, they have this already in the sense that, um, you know, they're, they're able to act in what we might call the noosphere, right? The, on, on the internet, they can, they can act by producing stimulus to humans and then they sense the responses. So that's a very limited form of this kind of feedback, but with self-driving cars with robots, um, they're going to be acquiring much more direct abilities to act in the physical world and to act in much more physical ways. And given that feedback mechanism, which will be an inevitable part of, of these machines, there is a real possibility of them uh, being able to develop some form of embodied cognition. So I have a bit of a multi-layered response to that as we are kind of bringing all of this together. I'm thinking of memetics and the idea that we're going to have 
you know, these digital living beings that are able to quickly create all kinds of informational memes throughout the internet. We have embodied cognition AI that might be able to actually move through the world. And then I have this thought in the back of my head of of you saying, you know, we're not really top down uh, controlling these mechanisms. We're kind of nudging or in a symbiotic relationship with. So that brings me, I guess, naturally to this thought of how do we do this responsibly? How do we how do we guide this process in a way when there is so much power in these technologies and we're not really fully in control, but we need to somehow move forward and in a reasonable way? How do we do that? I mean, is it policy? Is it culture? Kind of what, what do you think? I, I think that's a very hard question. And, um, you know, I guess I, I, the only real answer I can give you is the answer from the perspective of a scientist, which is, um, we need to try to understand the processes. We need to understand them better. And we need to really hesitate when we find that our, you know, previous assumptions are leading us to wrong conclusions about where this is headed. Um, so, you know, you see people with simplistic answers out there. So one of the simplistic answers is, well, let's just, um, you know, I, I teach in an engineering, uh, uh, college of engineering at Berkeley. Right. And, and so one of the simplistic answers is, well, we should just, uh, include ethics components in all of our engineering classes. And that, you know, as long as, uh, the, the presumption is that as long as every engineer uh, behaves ethically, nothing bad will happen. I personally believe that assumption is really far-fetched. And, you know, we have seen so many technologies that have led us in completely unexpected directions um, that, I mean, I, I certainly don't want to say that we shouldn't encourage our our engineers to behave ethically and to think about ethics that I, that I, to me, it almost goes without saying, but is that a solution? Uh, I, by itself, I don't think so. Do you, do you therefore favor maybe more strongly enforced regulation or do you think this is kind of we need to let the ecosystem play itself out like what what approach do you think is the best to kind of help rein that in i i think that regulation has to be part of it um just like you know um i mean we were talking earlier about homeostasis in an organism we need homeostasis in a society too right we need feedback mechanisms such that we maintain stable conditions for the society and these feedback mechanisms, you know, if you let anything powerful run open loop, um, you, it's kind of like the difference between, you know, uh, an uh, atomic uh, electric power plant and an atomic bomb. Right? Yeah. They're basically the same underlying uh, physical process, right? But one of them has a tight regulatory feedback loop and the other one doesn't. Um the same thing could happen with this technology. If we fail to put in uh, regulatory feedback loops, um, it could behave like an atomic bomb. Yeah. Well, we're, we're getting close to our time here and I, I want to kind of leave with a real honoring of your perspective and, and kind of your thoughts on this. So as we come to a close, can, can you just kind of uh, tell us, what we really gain by switching our perspective or what perspective you want us to switch to. We, we obviously talked about, you know, stepping away from the top down thought and, and embracing this more symbiotic relationship, but could you kind of summarize or I guess point us in the direction that you think would be beneficial for us to start thinking in as a society so that we can maybe more responsibly, more reasonably navigate this transformation. Well, one of the, um, one of the missions I think that I'm on is um, I, I live and work in a highly technical culture, right? I teach in an engineering school. I, uh, I work with engineers all the time. And um, I feel like 
what we're what it what what is happening with technology is complex enough that we can't just focus on the technical problems that we need to in fact step up our game and think societally learn from our colleagues in the humanities and the social sciences who i think are much better at understanding humans and human societies than we are as engineers and so i one of my missions is to get much more multidisciplinarity in in our thinking and so rather than just you know sort of introduce a naive ethics component in courses i think we should have all of our engineers you know study history study sociology um uh study economics right it, it's uh, there's perspectives about how a society functions that are not just engineering perspectives and um this we need more kind of renaissance people who can integrate that kind of thinking and uh too often i see a tremendous arrogance among my fellow computer scientists who you know dismiss all of all all other disciplines as mickey mouse disciplines uh, i mean i've heard them use that term and they they're speaking from pure ignorance right they don't they don't get that many of these other disciplines are dealing with problems that in some ways are very much harder than the technical problems that we deal with where you know you, it's you you know you can often find a nice simple path to a solution uh that's not always the case in societal problems and so we really need to be using our best minds and using them together cooperating to try to figure out how to manage this beast yeah lovely well any any closing thoughts edward i want to give you a chance you know obviously you can tell us about your books or anything you're working on but i want to just give you a chance here if there's anything you'd like to promote or, or close uh, that i didn't highlight for you um well uh, not really i'm not very good at promoting <laughs> things in fact I, i guess the one thing that i might say is that uh I just made an arrangement with MIT Press to make both of my books, The Plato and the Nerd and The Coevolution open access. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah, so they uh you, you know, hopefully that'll make them more widely available. I feel like they these two books have become much more relevant with the developments of the last couple of years than perhaps they were when they were published 3 years ago and 5 years ago. Um and so you know i and i feel like they do they give a a coherent philosophy um but it's not a usual philosophy i think and you know for many people particularly technical people there's some things in these books that are going to be hard to swallow uh, the non-universality of computation for example is something that most computer scientists will resist horribly um the fact that the physical world may not be digital is something that most physicists these days seem to be uh very hostile to that idea um they've really bought into the um they they've drunk the Kool-Aid of this digital physics idea um and i counter it uh, i think the world is more complex than that <laughs>